Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. Friends, there aren't a whole lot of more important questions that we can ask ourselves than that one. If Jesus is real, and our faith in Him is real, it must come to bear in our households. We can't live as though these things matter out there. They matter everywhere. God is inviting Himself into all of our relationships here. He's inviting Himself to be intimately involved. And what I'll tell you is, if He is not intimately involved in all of the relationships that are discussed here, we will fail in those relationships. We will not be the husbands, wives, fathers, children, uh, employees or employers that God intends us to be. We cannot. We cannot do this without God's intimate involvement without His amazing grace. So, with that being said, let's take a couple of moments. We'll talk with the Lord, and then we will continue in our worship, uh, in the portion of our worship that is in the Word. Let's pray together. Father, it is a privilege for us to spend these moments together singing, speaking of Your grace. We are amazed by Your grace We're thankful for how you have cared for us so deeply and given us what we could never give ourselves. You've granted to those of us that have trusted Jesus, you've granted us eternal life and eternal righteousness. And when we surrender ourselves to you, you grant us temporal righteousness, righteousness for today. We ask that you'd help us this morning that we would yield ourselves to you and allow you to teach us, and to allow you to enter into our relationships, these vital relationships spoken of in this text. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is much easier to put on a hypocritical mask when we're in public than when we are in our home. Those in our family see the good, the bad, and the ugly. They really know what's going on, don't they? There's only so long that we can fake full surrender in our homes. Because in our homes, we find broken appliances. You know when your appliances break, you find out a little bit about what's going on inside of you. We find kid vomit. When there's vomit on the floor, on clothing, on bedding, on walls splashed all around, you find out a little bit about yourself. In our homes, we find burned meals. We find out a little bit about ourselves when we experience a burnt meal. We find a little bit about ourselves when someone spills soda and it gets into the cracks of the table or milk. Even worse. Gets in the cracks of the table, drips down, kind of sticks all over. Nasty. We find a little bit about ourselves. We find out about ourselves when we have a scratched car. Maybe it's a new car. Maybe we really like it. And someone smashes their door into it. Find a little bit about ourselves. We find a little bit about ourselves when there are bleach holes in our clothes or damaged windows. I don't know about you. If you don't have windows in your house or not, I assume you do. And you have replacement windows. Think, oh yeah, this is great. And, and, and you, you're using them, and everything's good, and you think, all right, now I can clean them. And so you lift it up to the proper height, you press the buttons, you pull them down, you can do the backside. It's, it's excellent. You don't have to go outside to wash these things. You put them back in place, slides back down. Beautiful. Until, instead of lifting it up to the proper height, someone only lifts it up a little bit and does it, and then it doesn't go back in its place, and then the mechanism breaks. And then when you go to put it up, and you think, all right, it should stay, and it goes, boom. Bad. Bad news. You say, how did this happen? Someone broke the mechanism. How did it happen? Because they didn't lift it up to the proper height. I told you how to do this. I told you how to lift the the, the window to the right place and and get it to the right spot and press the right button and fold it the right way and, and how when you put it back in place, it goes in a certain way so that when you put it back in place, you're not breaking things. I told you how to do this. You find out a little bit about yourself when you have damaged windows in your home. You find out a little bit about yourself when your child fails their math test or science test or spelling test. 
Spelling? How can you fail spelling? Really? Come on. They gave you all the answers. They told you, this is how you spell lemon. L-O-M-O-N. No, I know. I know how to spell lemon. <laughs> Believe me. They gave you all the answers. You had it for an entire week. How do you not know how to write lemon? It's really easy. Listen, I've been teaching you the word the for 24 years now. Can you please learn how to spell the? You find a little bit about yourself when your child fails something that you don't think they should fail. We find out a little bit about ourselves when there's a battle over media devices. Now you know what a media device is, whether it's a phone or an iPad or a laptop or a PS4 or a PS3, a PS2, a PS1, an Xbox 360, an Xbox Cube, an Xbox One. What are all these things? You know what all these things are. You find out a little bit about yourself when there's this conflict over an electronic device. You know, what is this, what is this going to do for you? Well, I keep all my contacts in there, and I have my emails, they come in there, and, and I can check Facebook, and I can find out what's really happening in the world. <laughs> Conflict about small things. See, we, in our homes, these opportunities arise time in and time out. You see, it's easy to talk about allowing the king to reign in us And it's much easier to keep on that look when we're in public because there's only so long we have to keep on the look. But it's when we go into our homes and and you're comfortable and, and the mask comes off and there's no more like hiding behind who we really are. It's when we're in our homes that we find out who we really are. And it's where we find out if the king really is ruling and reigning supreme in my heart. That's what we find out. There are constant irritations and challenges, and there is a great temptation to act out of our natural resources. Now, I don't know if you've learned this yet. I hope you have. I hope that that my teaching is clear enough and that your understanding of God's Word is clear enough to understand that your natural resources are not good. My natural resources are not good. When I live out of my natural resources, conflict is built. It is spreading. It is inflamed. It is only because I have some supernatural resources that conflict can turn to peace. And hatred and animosity can turn to love. And frustration can turn to long-suffering. You see, that's the fruit of the Spirit there. We must allow the King to rule in our homes. This is what we'll talk about this morning and next week and the week after I would suppose, here I am with my plans again, we'll talk about allowing the King to rule in our workplaces. But for this morning... As we consider this, I want to look at the surrounding texts around the, the home passage. The home, you know, it starts in verse 18 and it goes through 21. talks about wives, husbands, children, fathers. But there's more to this than just looking at those four verses. We will endeavor to do that next week. What we must see here is that when the king is ruling in our lives, there are some some principles that we, that we can hold on to. And it starts in verse 17. When our king is ruling our lives, our words and deeds reflect him. When our king is ruling our lives, our words and deeds reflect him. Look at verse 17. It says this, And whatever you do, in word or deed, Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Do you realize that verse 17 is a practical outworking of verse 10? Look at verse 10. And it says, And have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge, according to the image of Him who created him. 
he's been telling us about this. He's been telling us that we need to, to put to death our natural affections. And he's been telling us that we need to allow what has already happened from a, a positional standpoint. We have been renewed. It's wonderful. We know in heaven we are perfect. We are, we're seated in the heavenlies with Christ. This is all happy news. But in our day-to-day lives, that image that, that God has implanted in us needs to be demonstrated now. And so in verse 17 he says, in everything you do, whatever you're doing, in word or in deed, it should all be done for His glory. It should all be done in the name of Jesus Christ. And, and the image that God has implanted in us that has been marred by sin can be demonstrated clearly when we're walking in the power of the Spirit. And when we are walking in the power of the Spirit, it is reflected in our words and our deeds. In the home and out of the home. So listen, guys. You're a a husband. Your words and deeds can reflect Jesus Christ. They can. Or they can reflect your natural resources. Which is going to add grace to the hearer? Which one? Natural resources or the image of God? The image of God. And that happens only when the Spirit is controlling me. When I have allowed the King to reign supreme, it impacts my words and my deeds. So, we, we see this words and deeds thing all through the Scriptures. Words and deeds display what's happening inside of us. When we are filled with the Spirit, we speak words that nourish the listener. When we're filled with the Spirit, we use our hands... For the benefit of others. This is why in Ephesians chapter 4 he says, Hey listen, let him who used to steal, steal no more. But let him instead labor with his hands, so he may have something to give to him who has a need. The one is saying, hey, you have something I want, I'm taking it for myself. Using my hands to please me. The other is, using my hands, working diligently, accumulating something, not for my own good, but so that I can see how can I be a benefit to other people. You see the difference? Words and deeds. When the king is residing in my heart, when the king is ruling in my heart, my words and my deeds will reflect that very clearly. Secondly, as we consider this surrounding passage, when our king is ruling our lives, thanksgiving is regular. Thanksgiving is regular. Take a look again at verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Look what it says. Giving thanks to God the Father. Giving thanks to God the Father. Now this, this comes again through in the Scriptures. I'll, I'll give you one negative and one positive. The one negative, I'll remind you, of Romans chapter 1. Now, Romans chapter 1, you're starting to where's this thankfulness thing in Romans chapter 1? When you get to verse 18, he says, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. This is not happy. Not a happy section. He talks about how men have debased themselves. And there's a whole list of sinfulness there. And, and you know, everyone wants to harp on the bottom rung of that ladder. Though it's to be harped on, right? But what about the middle rung? It says, neither were thankful. So where God is condemning unrighteousness, he includes unthankfulness. That's a problem. And on the positive side, you know, that, that's the, you know, we don't like this discussion here about the negative lack of thanksgiving. And then on the positive side, you you can turn to like 1 Thessalonians 5. Now it will be on the screen, so you don't have to actually turn to it. You know the passage. It says in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 16, Rejoice evermore. Very happy. Uh, Pray without ceasing is verse 17. And then verse 18, In everything, do what? Give Give thanks. How important is this? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. You could translate that through, if you'd like. I would. Through Christ Jesus, 
for you. This is the will of God through Christ Jesus. You accomplish the will of God through Christ Jesus. He does this in you. In everything, give thanks. Now we look a little later in that same text. It talks about how the God of peace will sanctify us in our body, soul, and spirit. In verse 24, he tells us that faithful is he who has called you who also will do this. So where he again, requires something of us, he then tells us that he is the supplier of this thing. And so we recognize when the king is ruling in our hearts, thanksgiving is regular. This is what happens when when Jesus Christ rules in us. He tells us the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5. When you're filled with the Spirit, he tells tells us that we'll give thanks. It's one of the results of being filled by the Spirit. In Colossians again, we're still considering what happens when Christ the King is ruling in our lives. Our words and our deeds reflect Him. Thanksgiving is regular. Thirdly, we are motivated for His glory. We are motivated for His glory. Look at verse 17 again. And whatever you do in word or deed, will you read the next phrase with me? Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do all in the name. Let me ask you. Whose name are you living for? Whose name are you living for? I remember back back in the day. We all like stories about back in the day. My father would drop me off at someone's house. He'd say, this was a regular. My father's very consistent. Honor your father and your mother. Yeah, Dad, I got that. Remember, you're a Clark. I got it, Dad. In other words, you represent me. You represent our family. When you go out there, you are a Clark. Now, that's a good name. I like the name Clark. It's easy to spell. Doesn't take up that many pay, uh, you know, letters. You know, it's easy to, to sign. It's all good. But is that the name I'm living for? Is that the name I'm living for? I want everyone to know Robert Charles Clark. So now you know my middle name, like that. No, even oh, I want everyone to know all about Doctor Robert Charles Clark or Lieutenant Robert Charles Clark. Is it really? Is it about my name? Is it about me? It's so easy to get lost in this, isn't it? Where we start finding ways that people will know us and think well of us and care about us. That's not the name we're living for. We go forth, as it says in the third epistle of John, for the sake of the name. And that name is not mine. And that name is not yours. And friends, it's not even the name Cornerstone. It is the Cornerstone. Jesus Christ. That's the name that we live for. When we allow the the, the King to reside supremely in our hearts, we live for another name. Not our name, but His. It's in uh, for the sake of His name. It's, It's everything that we do done for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31, a familiar passage, the Bible says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So now we have these, this, this verse 17, and it really is leading us, it's leading us into our passage that we're going to be really studying next week. In fact, at the, the end of it, in verse 23, he reiterates this concept. And so really you have a, a God, to God's glory kind of sandwich here. In verse 17, God's glory. In verse 23, God's glory. And, and the things in between, wives, husbands, children, fathers, bondservants, those things that are in between apply. Look at verse 23. It says, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. So he's really trying to motivate us. He's trying to give us an understanding that the one for whom we do these things is not ourselves. In fact, wives, you're not submitting to your husband for the sake of your husband. Husbands, you are not loving your wife simply for the sake of your wife. Children, you're not obeying your parents simply for the sake of your parents. Fathers, you're not, you're not bringing your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord simply for your children's sake. Bond servants, uh, employees, you're not simply going to work simply for your boss's sake. 
Now, the people are matter, right? Wives, your husbands matter, right? Husbands, your wives matter, right? Fathers, your children matter. Your children, your parents matter. Uh, employees, your employers matter, right? They, they do matter. I'm not saying that we disregard them altogether. But that is not our main motivation. Our main motivation is the one who gave himself for me. The, the real motivation is knowing who it is that reigns supreme in heaven. Who is supposed to reign supreme in me. When he does reign supreme in me, my words and deeds reflect him. There's thanksgiving that is regular, and I am motivated for his glory. Now, further discussing this. This is good stuff here. Some facts. Some facts concerning our position with the king. Take a look at verse 24. We are subjects of the king. Before we read it, you need to know what I'm saying here. We are, if you're a believer, we are subjects of the king. You know what I mean by a subject? You got like the king and you got the little peon people. <laughs> right? Wherever there's a king, there's got to be people that he's ruling, right? Subjects that we're being ruled. He tells us that this is a fact. This is not like, hey, um, you might want to consider serving the king. He says, you, in fact, serve the king. Verse 24, look what it says. It says, knowing this, or knowing that, from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. That is not a command. That is not a command. Don't read it like it's a command. He doesn't say here, serve the Lord. He says, you serve the Lord. He's making a statement of fact. So here's the deal. As believers, Jesus is our king. We are either living in subjection to him or we are living in rebellion against him. Keep that in mind, friends. When, when we come to verse 18 and start talking about wives, when we come to verse 19 and start talking about husbands, when we come to verse 20 and start talking about children, 21, start talking about fathers, remember who you're serving. You're serving Jesus. You're serving King Jesus. He is the one we serve. We are servants of the King. So we're either in subjection to Him in our relationships or we are in rebellion against Him in our relationships. Let me just tell you, friends, the last place you want to be is rebelling against the One who can speak the world into existence. The One who sustains each star and planet and your very being. You don't want to be in rebellion against that king. You don't want to be in rebellion against him. We are servants of him. Secondly, with regard to these facts, this is an encouraging one. We are heirs of an eternal, unchanging, vast inheritance. I wanted to put all those adjectives in there. Because it really is descriptive of what we are heirs of. We are heirs of an eternal, unchanging, and vast inheritance. That's what it says at the beginning of verse 24. I read right through it because I wanted to get to the second half of the verse. But look what it says in verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord, you will, you will, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Well, what kind of an inheritance is this? I'm looking forward to boats and trucks, and I want a log cabin, and I want to be on a lake, and I want a dog, and I want a porch, and a big field. What kind of an inheritance are we talking about? Take a look, please, with me at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Beginning in verse 3, this is one of the more glorious passages you'll ever read. 
It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us, meaning made us alive. He's begotten us again, made us alive a second time to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what is this hope? What kind of a hope is it? Verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away. It is reserved in heaven for you, those of you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Look at verse 9. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Look at what kind of an inheritance has God made us a part of. It's a sure one. It's an unending one. It is an unchanging one. Unending, unchanging, and vast. What do you mean vast? Use these words. It means it encompasses a great deal. In Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, the Bible says this, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. Look what he says. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. Now you're all familiar with the fact that in Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus has been appointed heir of all things. Heir of all things. Listen, there's nothing, there's nothing that is outside of that scope. Think about the inheritance that your Heavenly Father has reserved for you. It's everything. You just read Psalm 2. He talks about you know, these people that have risen up against the Lord and God kind of laughing and chuckling at their, their insanity. And then he says that I've set my king on, on my holy hill. That all these kingdoms, they're all his. Everything. Everything in it. Everything God has made will be subject to him. And guess what? If you're born again, you're heir together with him. You're a joint heir with Christ of all things. Well, why does that matter? Well, back in Colossians chapter 3, we're looking at, at these things. We were looking at relationships. And I want you to think, you head back to Colossians 3. I want you to think about uh, why you struggle with your husband, ladies. Why do you struggle with your husband? Now, your husband's not perfect, is he? You can admit it. Your husband's not perfect. Why do you struggle with that? Guys, why do you struggle with the imperfections of your wife? Your wife's not perfect. I know. I know she's not. Because she's a human. Why do you struggle with the imperfections of your wife? Why, parents, do you struggle with the imperfections of your children? Kids? Why do you struggle with the imperfections of your parents? They're not perfect. They're not perfect, that's for sure. They're human. They're sinners. They're not fully glorified yet. Why do you struggle? Because you have these things you, you think are right and these things that you think are best. And this is, this is the best way to go. And these are the things that I should have as a wife. These are the things I should have as a husband. These are the things I should have as a, as a child. These are the things I should have as a parent. We, we, we know what we have expectations of. Listen, there's not one expectation that will not be fulfilled in glory. Heir of all things. Don't try to get it all now. You'll never equal that inheritance here on earth. It's not happening. This world is not designed for all of our pleasures to be fulfilled. That's coming. That's coming. All your pleasures will be fulfilled. Now, when I say pleasures, it's the pleasures that that really fulfill you, not the pleasures that this world is subscribing to, telling you that this will really make you happy. This is really the best way to go about it. I'm not talking about those sick, disgusting, twisted pleasures. 
I'm talking about real pleasure that will endure. Real pleasure that satisfies the soul. The kind that makes you not have to have a drink again. Not have to have another thing to eat. It satisfies. It's enough. That's what God gives. May I implore you, friends, as we look at these passages, don't settle for that which will never. Don't settle for that which cannot satisfy. The biggest problems we have in our lives are unmet expectations. We think things should go in a certain way. And guess what, friends? We're wrong. We're wrong. You serve the Lord Christ. And friends, there's no dissatisfaction with that. We have an eternal, unchanging, and vast inheritance. That day is coming. All right, we're going to continue on in Colossians 3. We've talked about some results of the, the king ruling in our lives, some facts concerning our position with the king. Now the source of our successful, fruitful subjection is the king himself. Don't miss this, friends. We live, it, we live in a world that loves self-help books. Self-help. Do it yourself. DIY. It's like he even got his own little acronym now. We, we like to know how to fix ourselves and fix our spouse and fix our kids. And, you know, if you read this book, you'll have ten better ways to be a better you. If you, if you read this book, you'll be able to, 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 to operate a Mac computer. You know, the idiot's guide to this and the dumb person's guide to that. We love self-help books because we think that it'll fix us. It'll help us. I want to tell you something right now, right where you're seated. The Bible is not such a book. It is not a self-help manual. And far too many people treat it as such. If I read this, I'll be better. I feel better when I come to church. I feel better when I'm around this situation. I feel better when this happens. It's not about feeling better. The problem we have is a deeply rooted spiritual issue. And you don't fix that by reading a passage and you don't fix it by going to church. There's only one person who's the rescuer. It's not the church. It's not a pastor. It's not your hubby. It's not your sweet wife. The rescuer is Jesus. He's the only rescuer. There are no others. And there are no substitutes. Any substitute is a dismal failure. Look at what he says here in verse 17 again. Don't miss this. It says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father. I intentionally skipped reading this earlier. Through Him. Through Him. Listen. This is how much we stink. You ready for this? This is how much I stink. I can't even give thanks to God without Jesus. And until I recognize my absolute and utter desperate need for Him, I will continue to go through fledgling along, just kind of Sometimes I feel good about things. Sometimes I feel bad about things. Sometimes I see some some successes. Sometimes I see some failures. I'm I'm going to continue with this, this really frustrating Christian experience until I come to the end of myself and become like that beggar. Become like that poor person. I'm talking about the tax collector. What was he like? Dear God, be merciful to me. A sinner. And you've got the other guy over here. We like to call him the Pharisee because that's what it's called in the parable. But it's like, it's the religious guy. The one who knows. The one who's really spiritual. Who knows how to do things the right way. Dear God, I thank you that I'm not like this rotten human being. I know what I'm doing. Now we can go through and use his actual words, but you know the words. Just summarize it with, I know what I'm doing. I know how to do this Christian thing. That guy went away justified. The, the one who was begging, 
the one who realized he had nothing to offer, this guy went away in his sin and condemned. Why was he condemned? Because he thought he could figure it out. He thought he could do it. That is totally against the message of Scripture from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation 22. In fact, this whole context, he's been building us and teaching us this concept. The whole context here is that we have life in Christ. He is our hope. He is our life. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. He's the one that gives us the ability to, to put to death the deeds of the body. The affections that we have, it yields the fruit of the flesh. What kind of... Uh, fruit is that? Well, look at verse 5. It's fornication and uncleanness and passion and evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. Well, well, what's the, what's the alternative? He says in verse 10, You have put on the new man who was renewed in, the, in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ... What? Oh. Christ is all? You mean that's where my affection should lie? Well, that's what he told us in verse 2. Set your affection on things above. Not on things of the earth. And Christ is in all, meaning all believers. That's the context. Verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, this is true about you, put on, these don't belong to you, put on tender mercies and kindness and humility and meekness and long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so also you must do. He's telling us that the, the solution to our challenge here is not us. The solution to our challenge is Jesus. There's a reason that Paul told us to put off our affections and to put on Christ. The source of our successful, fruitful subjection is the king himself. So we talked about what, what, look, uh, what having the king ruling in our lives looks like, right? Words and deeds that reflect him. Continuous thanksgiving and living for His glory, motivated by His glory. We talked about the fact that um, we are His subjects, we are His servants, and there's a, there's a payout in the end. It's an inheritance that's vast, and it's, it's eternal, and it's unchanging. And we see that the, the way that we become subject is not anything other than the King's doing Himself. He's, he's brought us to this point of saying, yes, there is no other way. Do you believe that? There is no other way. I cannot become the kind of subject, the kind of representative of my, of my king that I need to be without the king himself working in me. So now, further, there are earthly consequences for living without regard for our king. And I'll tell you, friends, so many professing Christians, they're experiencing those earthly consequences of not living with regard to their king. It can be seen in their marriage. It can be seen in their dealings with their children. It can be seen in their workplaces. It's just, frankly, a disaster. What kind of consequences? Now, look at verse 25. He says, But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. And there is no partiality. Meaning, like this is true for everybody. This is true for everybody. There is no one that is without, that is outside of this passage. So, what, what kind of consequences are we talking about? Let me ask you a question, and I want you to think it through. Is there a fearful judgment at the end for believers? Is there a fearful judgment at the end for believers? I hope you said no. I'll ask you with a follow-up question just to help bring your thinking along a little bit. Did God's judgment on Jesus fully pay for your sins? Or did God reserve a little bit of that judgment for you? You save a little back? Well, I, I, you know, 90% I poured out on him, but I kept back this 10%. I'm going to pour it out on you. Is that how it works? The word propitiation 
There's a nice biblical word. It's in Romans 3. It's in 1 John chapter 2. It's a word that means settled and satisfied. Settled or satisfied. Either one of those works. God's wrath against your sin has been settled on the mercy seat. You know that mercy seat is Jesus? God's wrath against your sin has been satisfied. Where? On the mercy seat. In Jesus. So, if there's no fearful judgment ahead for the believer to look forward to, or to fear, what is verse 25 talking about? And that's where I use the term earthly consequences. There are earthly consequences for not allowing God's grace to guide your human relationships in and out of the home. I want you to think this through. Do not fade out at this point. This is essential for us. Are there consequences? Are there consequences for not following what God has graced us with? Yes, there are. Are these consequences a result of God's anger against you for your unwillingness to fulfill his demands? Let me tell you, most people are afraid of God. Or they don't care about him at all, one or the other. But people that are God-fearers, most of them are afraid. And they're like, oh, I don't want the lightning bolt to, to, to come out of the sky. Oh, I just said that. I, oh, I hope the lightning bolt doesn't come. I've heard that. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say that to me. Really? That's who this God is. Well, let me have you turn in your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 12. There are consequences to not allowing God's grace to reign supreme in our lives. I want to just note two different consequences. Here in Hebrews 12, it's a painful yet productive consequence. Keep that in mind. Painful but productive. Verse 3 of Hebrews 12. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, speaking of Jesus, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed. You're not dead yet, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect, shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For indeed, they, our fathers, our human authorities, they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he, God, for our, what? Prophet. That we may be partakers of what? His holiness, verse 11. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained, good word, trained by it. So what God is telling us is, listen, I've given you all this grace, and this is, this is how it works its way out. There are, there, there are, there are things that, that God is willing to do in your life if you refuse God's grace. He will chasten you. Now, chastening feels bad, but is good. Chastening hurts, but it's profitable. God is, is, is putting within you the peaceable fruits of righteousness, which, because you're not yielding to His grace, you're not experiencing those peaceable fruits. And he, they could be yours, those peaceable fruits, if you'd yield to Him. But since you're not yielding to Him, the peaceable fruits come through pain. Because at some point, you come to the end of yourself and say, this isn't working out. 
bashing my head against the wall doesn't feel good. The pain and, and the turmoil that's going on all around me, it doesn't feel good. I need to turn back. And the turning back yields such sweetness, like the prodigal son coming home. And he finds his father not cold and indifferent and moving on about business. He finds his father waiting and looking and spotting him and running to him and embracing him and bringing him in and and putting on a feast for him and putting on his robes on him and his ring on him and saying, my son is back. You find the sweetness after the pain. So many look at the, the father as one who's ready to lob their heads off if they were to come back. This is one consequence, friends, for for not yielding to God's grace that produces sweetness in in marriage and sweetness in child-rearing and sweetness in, in being a child, sweetness in the workplace, even when there's all kinds of crud all around you, swirling and sloshing at you. There are other consequences too, friends, aside from those sweet ones. Sweet ones that yield peaceable fruits of righteousness. You know, there's, it's called natural consequences. Have you heard of those? Guys, keep treating your wives terribly. See how it works out for you. It doesn't. It doesn't work out. There are natural consequences. And, and so many Christians, they find themselves in, in misery-laden relationships. What's the reason? They won't yield to Jesus Christ. They won't allow the king to come into their home. Oh, the king can be be their banner when they're out in public. But in the house, we we fold that banner up, put it in 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 the bureau drawer, and it's like, okay, I'm me now. And this is what you're stuck with, lady. And vice versa. Wives that won't yield to Jesus Christ are wretched instead of being meek and mild and sweet. The, the ornaments of a meek and quiet spirit. Remember that one in First Peter? Instead of that, there's something else that, that is their masthead. Themselves. Well, whenever we display our natural resources, anyone going to be happy around us? Probably not. Probably not. What are the natural consequences? Well, it's... It's homes that are a wreck. It's workplaces that are miserable. If you're serving the king, you can have a spouse mistreat you, and you're serving the king, right? So you're like, okay, I'm going to serve my wife, even though she's miserable, because I'm serving the king. I'm going to serve my husband, because I'm serving the king. I'm serving my master over here, my, my employer, because I'm serving the king. I'm going to serve my parents because I'm serving the king. I'm going to serve my children because I'm serving the king. What are we talking about, friends? Is, is the kingdom of God real to you? Does it, does it really matter? Does it enter into your home? Does it enter into your workplace? See, it's when we sever our understanding of Jesus Christ and His Lordship in our lives from that which is our everyday life that we find ourselves in deep deep lamentation. So we look at this passage back in Colossians and it starts off and it's telling us, listen, everything you do in word and deed, you do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto the Father through Him, gives us this list of wives, husbands, children, fathers. Then he recaps it, right? And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. For you know you're going to have a a reception. You're going to receive the reward of the inheritance because you serve the Lord Christ. But, don't forget, if you choose to disregard all of this, it's not good news. It's not good news. I'm not talking about not good news for your eternal life. I'm talking about not good news for your temporal life. And friends, who wants to live a temporal life that's filled with bad news? Anyone? Any volunteers? I don't see any. I don't see any. I have a solution for you. It's found in Colossians 3. It's found in Ephesians 5. That will be the source of our meditation next week. But listen, today, what we talked about still was about letting 
letting the king into your home. And it still was about letting the king into your workplace. Because we're serving him. And he makes all the difference. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. We need you desperately. We pray, Father, that you would help us to yield. Help us to recognize that we have this privilege of serving you in our homes and in our workplaces. And that while there may be very great obstacles that come into our way in home and at work, we're serving you. And we have an an inheritance that is just incomparable to anything. Help us to keep our perspective. Help us to set our minds on things above, not on things of the earth. Help us to recognize that we have died and that our life is hidden with Christ in you. And that Christ is our life and we will dwell with him forever in perfect joy and harmony, in satisfaction. And here while we wait, may we represent you. May you help us to represent you in a way in our homes, in our workplace, that others can see you. We'll be blessed. We'll turn to you and have life. I pray, Father, for anyone in here this morning that is struggling mightily in their home. Help them to see that Jesus is the solution for even this. And I pray, Father, for anyone that's here this morning that's never trusted Jesus as their Savior. They may not even have that hope of this eternal inheritance that is incomparable. We pray that you would turn their eyes toward you that your spirit would unlock their understanding, that they would abide in faith and have life from you. Work in us, Father, that we would represent you well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.